<laughs> okay, yes, you may be seated. Hey, we're in for a bit of a treat tonight because we have one of our resident theologians. One, one of those, I'm just putting the pressure on him so he's going to have to perform really well. Hopefully he, he's, not, he's one of those theologians who can speak in English so the rest of us can understand him. I'm sure he is. Hey, Scott, come on up, mate, and share the word with us. No pressure. <laughs> Thanks, Mal. Evening, church. Okay. I'm glad we sung that, not that song, but the song before that, The Beautiful Name of Jesus. Because I'm hoping tonight that you'll just see the power in Jesus' name. Because I've got a question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? How do we explain him? How can we know him? How can we understand the name of Jesus? You see, we can't escape him. He sort of pops up everywhere in our culture, albeit a secular culture. We find him in our music, in our arts. I mean, the name of Jesus has been a swear word for so long that it's lost all its religious meaning. We celebrate his birth by giving presents. We have Easter with uh, Easter eggs and um, hot cross buns, <laughs> which is awesome. But even as Australians, the vast majority don't fully understand why. Why do we do these things? Because who is Jesus? He is a man, and I don't know if anyone would deny that these days. We know he lived, he was born, he lived, he had a human body with all its limitations. We know from the Bible that he got hungry. After 40 days in the wilderness, it says just that, he was hungry. We know he got thirsty. When he was on the cross, he says, I thirst. We know he got tired because when he was on a journey to Samaria, he was wearied and had to sit down by the well. We know he had a human mind and a human soul and human emotions. We recall, and everyone would know the verse, Jesus wept. He was filled with sorrow because of the death of a friend. We know that he was troubled in spirit before the crucifixion. He had all the characteristics of a man, of a human being. But the Bible says he was without sin. In fact, the Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are, in every respect, yet remained without sin. He even spoke back to the religious leaders in those days, and they were trying to convict him, they were trying to oppose him. And he said, can any of you convict me of sin? I'm sure if I asked that today... Many of you would be able to point out my faults. My wife's over there. I'm sure she'd have a list for you. <laughs> but Jesus was without sin. But is that it? It's easy for us to accept the man Jesus. It's easier for us to think of him um, in his humanity, as a teacher, as an influential leader, as a moral instructor. But who is the G this Jesus? What is so significant about him? And we're going to look at John's Gospel to try and answer this question. I'm going to read John 1 to 18. John 1, 1 to 18. I'm going to skip a little bit in there just because the bit's about John the Baptist's testimony. We can all agree that John the Baptist testified about Jesus. But it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to skip to verse 9. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And I'm going to skip to verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So John begins this gospel account with a startling description of Jesus. Even though he doesn't actually mention the name Jesus to right at the end of that passage. Rather than simply being the birth of Jesus as the beginning... John's concentrated, concentrated with a big picture. So for John, Jesus' life and mission was a critical, central moment in all of existence, in all of history. That's why our calendar um, starts with everything, all the events before Christ, and then all the events after. The other Gospels begin with Bethlehem. John begin, begins before there was beginning, before there was existence. And he begins, essentially, with God. There's three significant parts of this. First, John points out that Jesus is God. And that Jesus is the creator. And then lastly, that Jesus is the redeemer. Probably the most significant part. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Try and get your mind around that for a moment. He uses this specific term, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. It should cast our minds back to Genesis. In the beginning is like a shorthand for Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it is by the Word of God that he created, that he accomplishes his acts of creation. God said, let there be light. God separated, said, let's separate the, the water from water. He said, God said, um, let the land produce vegetation. God said, Live, let living creatures inhabit the land. And God said, um, let human beings, and it was. God said it, and it was. The word of God himself in creation. And throughout the, uh, the rest of the Old Testament, the word of God is described as God's power in affecting creation, in deliverance, in judgment, in giving understanding and wisdom to, to the Israelites, to the prophets. But what's so important here is that by definition, God has no beginning. Before anything existed, there was God. And what John is saying is that however far back we go, whatever model we try and use to describe the beginning of things, the origin of things, Jesus was there. The Word was with God. But he even sort of goes further back than that to predate existence, to predate things that were. There never was when he was not. I'll say that again. There never was when he was not. 
But even more than that, the Word was not simply with God. The Word was God. He emphasizes this second person of the Trinity. The whole notion of the Word orientates um, the speaking of the Father. But not only did the Word exist in the beginning, He existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. See, the Word is not an impersonal idea, it's not some philosophy. It is a person, it is Jesus. He is God's Son, one in the Godhead with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And although our finite minds probably can't really understand the Trinity, how can God be one but three persons? We'll never understand that mystery. But the Scripture is clear. That's how it was. That's how it illustrates. God exists as one with three persons. If you didn't already get this, John qualifies it again in verse 18. At the end of that passage, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So Jesus is eternal. He is eternally one with God. He is therefore changeless. He is forevermore. He is the Son with the Father and the one who reveals God to us. Jesus is God. It's essentially what John is saying here. But it's greater than that because Jesus is also the creator. He says in verse 3, through him all things were made. So out of this unique communication, this unique um, communion between, uh, of love between God, the Father, and the Son, the universe springs into being. The greatness of Christ is seen in him being the creative mediator of all things that have ever existed and will ever exist in this world. I remember being at work and a mate was, I was working with me and we're doing a switchboard and, you know, his wife was a Buddhist and he had all these questions. He wasn't sure um, what everything was about. He was looking for meaning. He asked me what the point of things. He said, what's the meaning of life? And I must admit, I was a little bit stumped and stood back a bit and I was like, oh, hang on. I thought I had a pretty good answer. I said to know God and to love God. I think that's the meaning of life. I think it's mostly right. But see, in our modern world, the common question that scientists keep trying to find out and is to explain the whole universe, trying to find a purpose in the world, um, trying to find some theory that describes all of existence. But John has a very simple answer. The answer to all things is, is a person. It is Jesus. Nothing was made without him. Everything was made by him and for him. See, Jesus is the mediator in creation. And he goes further because he is also the ongoing sustainer, life giver. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, of all humanity. Jesus is the author of life, who reveals, who illuminates, who, who brings to light all of God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, so we can see it in, in creation. And so it is this word, this Jesus I'm talking about, in verse 14, who is God, who is the creator, who is the life giver, that John says... In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the God, from his throne, 
in the heavens, the one and only, from beginning to end, never changing, never changing eternal, all-powerful, saw his creation, saw that they had rebelled against him and turned away from him and decided to come down to earth. I mean, he didn't have to. He's sufficient in himself. He, he doesn't need us. He wasn't lonely or um, needed something else to satisfy him. He was satisfied in the Trinity, in the three persons. He simply came because he loved us and saw that we couldn't do it on our own. He came down the one true God, the begotten, the eternal word. And he didn't come down in fire and glory and big gold chariots and trumpets and horses and stuff and and went to battle with the opposing kings like everyone was expecting. He came as a baby, human flesh. He spent nine months in the womb, growing, developing as a human child. He was birthed with all the blood and guts and pain and beauty and miracle of birth. He was helpless as a child, but retained everything of his godness at that time. His deity, his glory in in God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If there was ever an argument against abortion, Jesus spent nine months in the womb, yet remained God. With all his divine nature, yet cells forming and growing and together um, for nine months in Mary's womb. That's another message. You see, pregnancy and birth is beautiful. It's one of the greatest miracles of you'll ever see, I think. Seeing the scans, the little baby's heart beating, uh, seeing them for the first time uh, in the flesh. I'll never forget the moment seeing our little daughter. You can probably hear at the back there making noise. Um, yeah, I'll never forget seeing her for the first time and waiting with eager expectation to, to see her and to hold her and to love her. But birth is also gross. All the bits that come with giving birth. As beautiful as it is, it's gross. See, when our little daughter was born, to which we had a relatively routine experience, Liz would say, but afterwards she described it as like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's messy, it's just a little gross. Yet if there's ever a picture we could relate to, it's this. Jesus was just like us. He was born like every other person in all of existence. From the beginning of his incarnation, his his God becoming flesh, he experienced helplessness, thirst, hunger, and every struggle a child could have. Yet he remained God and remained without sin. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's probably the, at least to me, one of the most significant Um, and memorable verses ever written. Because the implications of this are just limitless. The divine word became one with humanity. Jesus now identifies with us. And to such a degree that he takes on our creaturely weakness. Why would God do that? It's just incredible. And I don't think any words can really do it justice to the truth that's going on in these verses. How can our minds understand this? 
100% God, 100% man. The, the enormity of it is overwhelming. It's mind-boggling. I, I like this um, word, verse, song, whatever. It says, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. It's just an amazing picture, isn't it? The one who created everything is the one lying in a manger. But the miracle really, as amazing as that is, it's amazing for us. Since we've all sinned, we need salvation. And God is the only one who can save us. We can't do it on our own. We should be. We should be the one doing it. We should be the one living right. And God does not need saving, but he knows that we cannot do it. So it's necessary for the God-man, the Word becoming flesh, to do it on our behalf. So the coming of God in the flesh is not what saved us, as much as we love the Christmas story. It's his death and his resurrection. But it is by Jesus becoming like us that he could act on our behalf. See, this affirms the value of human existence to God. He would identify with us. He would take on our weakness and our suffering. If you never feel loved, just think about that for a moment. This truth should lead us to adoration, to adoring and worshipping and treasuring Jesus. At the beginning of this, this message, I asked... Who is Jesus? And I hope you could now, from what we've gone over, answer this and say, He is eternal. He is the creator. He is the word of the living God. Become human. You could say He's the everlasting, complete divine, yet He is holy and completely man and remains without sin. But I've got a second question. What does that mean for you? If that's who Jesus is, what does that mean? You see, in verse 9 to 13, I'll start with verse 9, it says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, the world did not recognise him, and it still doesn't. Even though he came to that which was his own, the people of Israel, his own home, they rejected him. In spite of all the centuries of waiting for a Messiah, when he came, they not only dismissed his claim as God, but they crucified him for it. Now, we can't blame the Israelites for this. That's just a picture of humanity. I imagine if Jesus came today, that would be the same way the world would act. He came claiming to be God. But Jesus came knowing that they would reject him, knowing that ultimately he would die on the cross. And he says, forgive them. You see, Jesus was without sin. He is the eternal God. He did not deserve to be punished, but he took it all and said to them, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because he knew God's grand plan of salvation to all of humanity. He knew why he was coming. He knew why he had to die. 
Philippians says it like this. Jesus, being God, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but humbled himself, becoming human, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then while he's on the cross, he said, it is finished. Because he knew God's plan of salvation was finished. There is now salvation for all of us because God knows you and because he sent Jesus for you. Jesus became flesh for you and endured the cross for you. He saw the day when he would be raised from the dead and that there would be a gathering of people for his name. In the generations to come, he saw that we would join together in his name and reign together with him for eternity. And that is why he came. You see, with the resurrection, there is no gospel. But it is the greatest news ever known. He is not, he is not here, he is risen. The disciples went around proclaiming this. The greatest story ever known, ever told. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Except his own people did not receive him. But John says there is hope. It's not all bad. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And what I really love about this part of Scripture is it's a message for all. All who believed. And I love that it's not my message. And I hope you can see that I've intentionally tried not to give many stories and illustrations, but just to show you that this is the Word of God. Salvation is for all. It doesn't matter what your intelligence is, if you can speak. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your race, your religious background. John says, all who believe. And even though, though I haven't met Jesus myself, I haven't seen him in the flesh, I haven't seen God, I have no proof of who he is, scientifically speaking, biologically speaking. I still believe in him because of what he's done for me. And the joy, the peace, the security, the love, the grace, the provision, and ultimately the satisfaction he gives me and to all those who trust in him. See, if the whole world is going one way, let us turn the other way and follow Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if his claims to be Jesus in the flesh is true, or to be God in the flesh, then it is worth following. And I think the evidence is proved in lives transformed, isn't it? We see it all the time when people come to Christ. And perhaps we can't prove Jesus not with science or not with some grand discovery. It's not like we can go back in time and prove his pre-existence. It's only by the scriptures and by our faith that we can believe. You see, we find him in the scriptures, but everything we do is by faith. You came in tonight and sat down in the chair and believed it would hold your weight. You had faith in that chair. But how much more shall we have faith in the creator of all things? John says, to all who believed, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, to have this personal membership with the family of God. 
to become nothing less than personally valued and loved by God. It's a radical distinction from the, the grossness of human birth, of human initiatives and natural descent and, and husband will and all that. See, being born of God is nothing more than sheer miracle. Being born into a heavenly family. So my prayer tonight, and the reason I wanted to bring this, was that I hope you can recognise and appreciate the mystery of God in the flesh. The eternal word that was with God and who has made himself known by coming to us in the flesh. But I pray more than just knowing that, that you would know him. That you would believe his claim to be God. And that you would know salvation and become children of God. So I started this, this message with the question, who is Jesus? But I want to change that and say, do you know this Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus' claim? And if you say yes, I say, do you follow him? Do you look to him? But if you say no, I would say, start now. Come to know Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, I just thank you that you didn't consider heaven to be something to hold on to. You saw us in our, in, our, um, in our sin and you came down to earth. You sent your son. We thank you that you made a way that we may know you, that we may have salvation in you. And I just pray for each and every one of them who is here tonight that they would be able to call themselves children of God, that they would believe and that they would know you. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks, Scott. Can we just have the music team back up again, please? That would be great. It's a great thought, isn't it? A thought that can also be hard to grasp, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as Scott has said, it's... Um, Hard to prove, I guess, scientifically, or all those types of things that a lot of people want to want to uh, you know, see or want. But it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how well you know your word, or anything like that. You know, the greatest thing is your testimony. When your family, your friends, your neighbours, your sporting friends, or whatever saw you over here and now you're over here that speaks so much more to our community as I said our friends and families and, and whoever it's such a great thing and only Jesus can do that amen only Jesus can do that amen let's finish off with something <laughs>